Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Right. The goal is to be the realistic optimist somehow, right? That's the, the golden mean. To me, the answer is continuously being ambitious and not waiting for paralysis analysis and getting stuff out there, even if it's not great, even if it's a problem, even if it's going to be an embarrassment, quickly getting feedback and then iterating and making it better. Is that focus on not being afraid to have product experiences that are not amazing experiences so that you can learn from them as quickly as possible and iterate and change, iterate and change, iterate and change. So my philosophy generally is be ambitious on what you want to accomplish, but understand the way you're going to accomplish that is through incremental small changes and small wins that'll keep adding up 5% here, 10% here, 15% there, 10% there. Could you get to that 200% leap? Yes. But if you aim for that 200% leap, you're going to be striking out a hell of a lot. And I'd rather have an 80% certainty of getting, you know, this 20% improvement than a half a percent chance of getting, you know, a 200% improvement. And that's kind of always been my philosophy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. David, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Totally psyched to be here. I am psyched to have you here. So I was introduced to you by way of our mutual friend, uh, Michael Shine, who wrote the Hype Handbook. And Michael's book was one of my absolute favorites. So anytime Michael sends a request, you know, a referral, I almost always say yes, because I, I don't even usually look. I'm like, oh, if Michael referred this person, then this is definitely a yes. Um, and then he told me you were the CEO of Meetup. So on that note, I thought I would start by asking you one of my favorite questions. That is, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having? on what you ended up doing with your life. Wow. Okay. Huh. So I was, I was, the group that I was in were the people that were really into sports, following sports, but really only average in sports. So I wasn't in the job <laughs> I was in kind of that, the nerd fantasy baseball, fantasy football, people know Stratomatic, you know, people that like knew every detail about every single sport and was like good enough to play with other people, but always kind of the worst person on the team. That was me. I can relate. Um, I was the most improved player on my seventh grade basketball team, which just means you're the shittiest player on the team. It's not like in the NBA where you're Jimmy Butler. But the interesting thing about it is I always was obsessed and very into sports. It meant that I always have like a very competitive type streak in me. I was always mm. into like board games and games and I love negotiating, but I was never good enough. So, but I was so surrounded by people. I was always in the honors classes, but kind of the bottom of the honors classes. So I was kind of that person that never thought that I was anything special, frankly, until later on in life, um, because of the fact that I had been surrounded by so many people in a private school who were just incredibly special. I had a hundred kids in my graduating class. We had four people who clerked for Supreme Court justices, for example. So it was a pretty elite class. Wow. 40% of people going to Ivy League schools, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's funny because my uh, group of friends in high school, I always say like the dumbest people in our group of friends went to Berkeley. <laughs> like we were the dumb ones. That's tough. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing I know that you allude to in the book is having lost a parent at an early age. And 
you know, you say that when I was 24, my best friend, Alan Heimrich passed away from shocking brain aneurysm. Two months later, another friend died by suicide. Then my father died. You spend more of your waking hours working than any other activity. You spend more time with a job than with your spouse or kids. My grief showed me that if possible, no one should waste this time on something that didn't make an impact. Um, and numerous questions come from that for me. I don't think that any of us imagine losing a parent that young. And I can't imagine, you know, losing a parent I'd imagine is painful at any age. And I've talked to so many people about this, but I know there's no way I could ever understand it without going through it. And it's literally the thing that I think I dread most. Like I honestly am more scared that one or both of my parents won't be alive when I get married or have kids than I am of being alone. I think that losing my best friend, having another friend die by suicide, and then losing a father at a relatively early age um, had a profound impact on me, like it would have a profound impact on anyone. Um, I've always believed that what makes life the most meaningful and important is actually death as odd as that kind of sounds, meaning death makes life valuable because it provides a finite amount of time that you're on this earth. And it motivates me personally to try to do as much positive and good with the time that I have. And, you know, when I think about the importance of being efficient and productive and organized, for me, all those three words really relate directly into how do I have as maximal an impact as possible? Because when you have those kinds of experiences, you learn about the, how quickly people, people can, can leave this earth and that you just want to make the world a better place when you leave than when you started. So it really did have a profound impact on me. And I would say it also helped my approach to management and my approach to people, which is, Never be an asshole. No asshole roles. Be kind. Help other people as much as you can. And everything comes back to you. And, um, you know, there's just no reason not to try to try to be a positive influence on, on others with all of your time that you have. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know you have kids too. And anytime I've talked to somebody about losing a parent in early age, I wonder what impact has that had on you as a father? Yeah. You know, I think when you, so my dad is an amazing person, Kenneth Siegel. He, um, he started his own neurological practice actually, um, because he never wanted to work for anyone else. So in many ways, he was actually an entrepreneur, physician entrepreneur. Um, and I had the opportunity at a young age to visit, I spent a day or two each year going around the hospital, visiting with him, visiting his patients. And having him walk into the patient and the patient's eyes would just light up and say, Dr. Siegel, you're here. And as a son, eight, nine, 10 years old, and I saw how the positive, amazing influence that he had uh, on his patients, it just made me think, wow, I want to be able to do that as well. And then, but the negative side to that was that he worked really, really hard. And he would work 70, 80 hours a week because he was working on his own. He was building a practice. He was building out other, 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 um, areas of practice, research, et cetera. By the time he passed away, he had 40 to 50 people actually working in the largest neurological practice in Connecticut. And I didn't have that much time with him one on one. So sometimes you learn from a parent what to do. And sometimes you learn from a parent, I want to do something different. So for example, with each of my three kids, I do a one on one trip with them almost every year. Now, so it could be just two days, it could be three or four days, but the one-on-one time with a child is something that I put in just incredibly high priority. And there's something special about total family time, but there's also something special about this, that one-on-one bonding time. And it's part of it is because I never did that with my dad because he worked so hard that I thought that was important to me. And the other part of it is because I saw him working so hard all the time. I said, there's got to be a better way. And how do I kind of even though I'm a CEO, I really focused on work-life balance throughout my career, um, probably because of the influence from my dad as well. So I think there's yeah. what to learn on both sides. Hmm. So one last question about this. Uh, <clears throat> I always wonder how 
the experience changes with each kid and also how those trips have changed as each kid has grown up. Because I always think you know, to myself, it's like when you're a teenager, the last thing you want to do is hang out with your parents and you're always annoyed by them. You're embarrassed by them. And you're, they're the most awful people in the world, even though you're just a gigantic shithead. <laughs> you know, at home, that's oftentimes the case. And I think one learning for me, I have a 20 year old, I'm only 47 years old. Yet I have a 20-year-old, 17-year-old, and 14-year-old. So we start, I started very young. Got married at 24. I had my first kid at 26. So I really started, started quite young. And you know, with the first kid, when, when he was in the moody teenage years, I got very upset. I got frustrated. I thought we were so close. What's happening? But then you start realizing, but the second and third kid, space is really what you need to give them. And the more space you give them, the better. So for example, we just went on a family trip. We went to Israel last week. And we had the three kids basically spend two days completely by themselves without us as a family. And they love that. And when I go on trips with my kids now, and they're 14 year old, 17 years old, I'm like, Hey, what are you doing today? What am I doing today? Okay. Let's meet up for dinner or let's meet up at some point in the day. The key is understanding that your kid doesn't want to be smothered with you, give them separation. <laughs> and then they'll actually want to hang out with you more. And they're like, Hey, wait, actually, can we just meet for lunch and dinner? I'm like, uh, okay, fine. If you want to really, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I always joke that basically when you grow up in an immigrant family and maybe this is just true for all people who are firstborns, but you know, the first kid is the experiment and then the parents <laughs> fix everything they fucked up on the second one. Well, I was the oldest. So I was my first parents kid experiment. Uh, unfortunately like what happened to me. So I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing I, I want to talk briefly about is, uh, education and preparing students for the future. I mean, I think it makes a perfect segue for, from talking about kids, but one of the things that you say is students are often taught the importance of building a specialty and taking a focused approach in their career choices, but this focus results in fewer and sometimes no, cho no choices, which then limits the likelihood a student will find a role that is the best fit for their specific needs. Besides how many students even know what they want and what they'll need when they get to college. And that really struck me because of the fact that, uh, I, you know, at Berkeley, I got there and everybody basically was, were future lawyers, bankers, doctors, and Google employees. There was sort of this really bizarre paradox that here you are surrounded by some of the smartest and most creative people in the world. And yet I'm guessing like most sort of elite colleges, it was a breeding ground for conformity. Yes. Especially the university of Pennsylvania, which is very impacted by the war and culture. Um, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. I still, at 47, kind of don't know what I want to be when I grow up. That's the fun of things, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had taken classes in religion and psychology, and I, I probably took my first 20 classes in 20 different topics. And I was like, crap, I have to choose a subject and take 12 classes of that? Damn. And then finally, the University of Pennsylvania announces my junior year, like mid-junior year, when like everyone had already finished all their core classes. I had no idea what I was going to major in. There's going to be a new major. And the major is going to be philosophy, political science, and economics. I was like, yes, it's the smorgasbord of majors. Sign me up. Prepares you for nothing. And, you know, <laughs> you have a, you have a, 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 a cocktail party knowledge of lots of different topics that maybe could be helpful. I think David Epstein and Range talked about the mm -hmm. power of kind of broad knowledge that maybe is a couple of inches deep and not incredibly deep. And, and for me, as a CEO where you're a general manager of a business, my core role is not to be a specialist in product or engineering or HR or marketing. In fact, to hire the people that are always better than me in all those areas. My job is to find how to weave the relationships between the different disciplines together so that they could all move forward towards one collective whole. And when you have only knowledge in one discipline, I've been in sales 25 years and that's it. Your ability to really be successful in running an organization is so much more difficult than if you've overseen revenue and product and all these other different areas. So it speaks to why I started as a consultant, because great way to know nothing and pretend like you know a lot of stuff and <laughs> sets you up for a CEO role perfectly. Well, I, I can relate. I mean, given what I do, I mean, it, I spend all my days talking to people like you from every walk of life imaginable. And so I have this like encyclopedia of broad knowledge in my head, but I don't know that I'm a specialist at anything, maybe interviewing people. So far, so good. So now, if you were to go into a educational institution like the University of Pennsylvania, or for that matter, any other college, what would you change? So number one is I think the greatest benefit 
that I personally gained from college goes back to the first question that you asked of what my community was like in high school, which is the communities that you surround yourself in and the people and the groups that you surround yourself in within college. I think one of the challenges in college is that there's a communal infrastructure that's very, very strong in many colleges, and it's called fraternities and sororities. And I'm not opposed to fraternities and sororities. It's a certain communal milieu that that can be amazing for different people. But if I ran a university, maybe one day I will, who knows, I would, and I am the meetup community guy, so I guess I have to say this, but I really deeply believe it. I would figure out how to build smaller niche group communities within the college that could be more than just superficial or tangential, but can be really deep identity building and provide better infrastructure and support around those areas. To me, that education that you could get could be possibly and even probably more impactful than things you could even learn in the classroom. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age? led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition. They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah. I also do it with Van Wilder, Wilder? but I'm a maverick. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever see the movie Van Wilder? No. Sounds like I should. Uh, Yeah. Well, the thing that I always think back to when I look back at college is this is the ultimate social opportunity. Everybody here is open to meeting people. And I realized at a certain point that I had basically just spent four years hanging out with nothing but Indian people. And it became very apparent to me when uh, this girl that I met who was at Stanford doing research for a year – came to Berkeley and she forgot her ID. And she said, do you know anybody you could call who would give me theirs? And I looked at her, I said, this is going to sound horrible, but I don't know any white people. Wow. You know, it, yeah. When people, listen, <laughs> it comes down to when you, when you come into a college, you look for the familiar mm-hmm. and the familiar for me could have been, you know, the Jewish background that, that I personally have um, or the Northeast New York background that I have, or for you, the Indian background. And, and it's such a natural thing to do because of the social pressures that exist. How can a college really find even greater ways? And they do some things to help people, to get people to meet other people that are totally different. Cause you know what, how it works. 
the friends that you have, like the first two weeks in school end up being, mm-hmm. you know, your, your roommates, your sophomore, junior, and senior. And somehow you're like, wow, it's all because we met during orientation. I mean, it's, it's really powerful. The people that you meet in your first few weeks in college that for four years, oftentimes it has an impact. So what can you do in those first few weeks to really expose people to massively different people than who they happen to yeah. be today? Yeah. I mean, the reason I brought up Ben Wilder is because he basically spent the story is about a guy and it's apparently based loosely on a true story about a guy who spent eight years in college. Um, and he literally joins every single club is friends with every group of people, regardless of, you know, whether they're geeks or not. He goes to the Hillel house and like becomes friends with everybody there. He helps, you know, a nerdy fraternity throw a party. And I remember looking at that thinking, wait a minute, this guy has the smartest strategy ever to meet people in college. Instead of discriminating, he just joins every club and becomes friends with everybody. I'm like, wow, that would be the way to do it. I love that. Okay, I'm definitely going to see it tonight, and I'll tell you about it afterwards. But that, that yeah, is, we'll have to talk think about, about it. those relationships and what those relationships can do. And think about your world outlook and and the lack of being judgmental or the 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 broad. The reason why I love traveling, for example, so much, been to like close close to 50 different countries, is because it gives you this opportunity to spend time in a country, talking to people, meeting people. And the last thing I try to do when I'm traveling is do touristy things. It's just kind of hang mm-hmm. out where people actually live, talk to those people in coffee, over coffee or bars or whatever. And um, it just gives you a totally different perspective on life and just the way oh, to go. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if I were to make a list of all the countries that I've visited, I probably could tell you that I haven't seen any of the major tourist landmarks in any of them. That's a win. That's a win. I remember I went yeah. to Paris with my wife and we, we like, we see the Mona Lisa? Nah, forget it. Let's hang out in a coffee house instead. It's great. Yeah. Well, let's uh, go through the trajectory of your career that has led to you becoming the CEO of Meetup. And, you know, as a CEO of a company, why spend your time writing a book? Okay. What do you want me to do first? Let's start with the trajectory. Like, I know, you know, you started at DoubleClick like, uh, you know, early on, but what's been the trajectory that led to Meetup? Yeah, sure. Okay. So I was extra, you know, sometimes it's luck and sometimes it's like brains. And of course, all CEOs are the people that are successful. Like it's always luck. It's always luck. But I'm telling you, there's a lot of luck. It's not just like brains. There were also some planful things that I did, but the luckiest thing that happened was that I got to be an early employee at DoubleClick. DoubleClick was this internet company, biggest internet company really in the New York area. There's over 200, kid you not, CEOs that have come out of DoubleClick today because people were, again, my, my age, 24, 25, 26, learning about the internet and the World Wide Web when no one else, people are working in newspapers, whatever the heck they were working at at the time. And you became so much more marketable. So I worked at DoubleClick. Then I went to Warden for business school. That was a tough decision for me because I had to go from essentially um, two salaries for two people to three to no salary for three people for two years, because we had our first kid while I start right before I started business school. Um, after that, I decided to work for the thing that was most opposite of consulting. So, you know, sometimes you have a bad experience in consulting. I did that before double click. I did that during business school. And I said, what's the opposite of consulting? The answer it's retail, like get your hands dirty, fingernail, dirt in the fingernails, you know, retail stores. So it's like, that's what I want. So I worked for, um, as director of business development for a pharmacy chain called Dwayne Reed, which at the time was the largest pharmacy chain in New York, acquired by Walgreens later on. And I built a business there and I started what I started doing in a lot of companies, which is to be an intrapreneur as opposed to entrepreneur, to build businesses, leveraging the significant assets of a company rather than having to, you know, lower risk, certainly lower reward. And we built this quite successful um, pharmacy kiosk business at Duane Reed that was quite um, innovative, I would say, in the industry. After that, I went to 1-800-Flowers, um, and it's a funny story how I got there. Uh, we go to go that later if, if that's of interest. Um, and I worked there for five and a half years. I basically just signed up with no real job, just become the VP of strategy and we'll figure it out. And yeah. I love, I love kind of going into jobs where there's no job that exists, but you create the job and you create the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the end, I was overseeing all mergers and acquisitions for the company. We acquired a whole bunch of cookie businesses, chocolate businesses, oversaw marketing, uh, business development, um, international operations, our database of 30 million names, a whole bunch of other stuff. Then I became a general manager of a 
the second largest health publisher after WebMD. It's called Everyday Health. After that, I became, I knew I wanted to go in a CEO route. So general manager was a good path towards that. Then I became president of Seeking Alpha, which is one of the largest financial publishers focused on investing. Uh, then CEO of Investopedia for about four years, um, grew the company from about $11 million in revenue to over triple that $35 million, then sold it. And then Adam Newman came a knocking and one of his board members and said, hey, David, we'd like you to be the first outside CEO of Meetup. And I said, yeah. Meetup. I love Meetup. Let's do it. Very cool. Yeah. So I wonder, uh, you know, I mean, obviously it, it, the whole book makes a lot more sense now based on t- your background, because it seems like you drew a lesson from every single experience that you had. And you even mentioned that there's value in every job, regardless of what it is. Believe it or not, one of my most uh, valuable jobs was working at McDonald's in high school because it taught me not to be a dick to people who serve you food ever. And because of that, I get free drinks often. Um, I remember one night we were waiting for like 25 minutes at this uh, you know, bar here in Boulder and the waiter came over there and I was like, he was like, you know, he's like, Hey, I, I saw you guys have been waiting. Sorry. I was like, you guys are busy. I'm like, don't worry about it, man. He was like, really? He was like, uh, I was like, yeah. he's like, what do you guys want? I was like, yeah. And I, I just talked to him. I was like, you know, I worked at McDonald's in high school. I learned never to be a jerk to people who serve you food. And he was like, yeah, don't worry. The drinks are on me. It teaches empathy. And empathy is probably one of the most important components to being a successful leader. Um, It's amazing to me, the number of CEOs and leaders of companies that I know, but one point in high school, for example, or college served as waiters and waitresses. The number of people who are successful, I've actually recently said to my kids, I'm like, you need to work as a waiter and waitress and you're going to be a lot more successful in, in your future. And the reason for that is because you're juggling multiple tasks. You, you focus on service orientation. You're going to build more empathy because of it. You have to be very organized. There's just a whole lot of things. You have to be able to balance, you know, a, a tray with lots of food on it at the same time. I don't know how applicable that is to lots of things, but, um, those types of experiences are so helpful in just building a person into the person that they ultimately want to become. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my sister told me that she worked at a French cafe in college. And when she did interviews for residency, nobody asked her anything about medicine. They asked her, to, she was going to a teaching hospital. They said, teach me how to make a cookie. <laughs> that is great. So even, until I don't haven't had a resume really in a long time, but I kept something on my resume for many years longer than I should have. I As 15, I worked for my dad in a summer job as an electroencephalograph technician, also known as an EEG technician. I don't know how he got away with me being 15 and being able to do this. I would hook, (laughs) I mean, I I don't want to ask, but I would hook up children and the elderly to this EEG machine. I do it like on my own, no nurses there. And then I would try to get um, some kind of, um, shoot, yeah, this out. What's the thing called that epileptics have? I'm blanking on the word. Seizures? Seizures, yeah. Sorry, thank you. Yeah. I would hook people up. You got that part out. I would hook people up to these EEG, this EEG machine, I would try to induce seizure activity by shining bright lights on them, by making loud <laughs> noises. And that's what I did at 15 years old. And I kept that on my resume as electro, trained electroencephalograph technician. And I was you know, looking for CEO jobs. And people would ask me about this, what is this electroencephalograph technician thing? And it's so much more interesting than your typical like, oh, you worked as a consultant for Deloitte. Who cares? Yeah. Well, speaking of CEO jobs, I feel like there's two paths to getting there. Yours, which is climbing the ladder um, and going through you know, sort of the trajectory that you did. And the other is to start your own thing. And I feel like the odds of ending up in your position are way lower than, than you know, becoming a CEO by starting your own thing. And at the same time, I don't think there's any you know, question that the experiences you've had have been invaluable in your ability to run a company. I have a, a cousin who's literally like one step down from a CEO at her company now. And she started with nothing but a community college computer science degree when she came here from India a couple of years ago. And she started her own business recently. Like I was joking with her. I was like, you want to be the CEO, start your own company. Uh, but one thing I wonder is for somebody like me, who was just a disaster in the corporate world, didn't have the experience that you did. How do I get that same knowledge and insight? I'm very fortunate because I'm in the position where I get to talk to people like you all day. And that's been invaluable, but I can tell you for sure that if I had your background and your experience, there are probably a lot of things that I would know how to do that I don't. So the answer is you got to start a podcast. 
<laughs> I, obviously, not everyone can start a podcast, though I would say it seems like lots of people have. There's a lot of podcasts out there. None as good as yours, Rini, that's for sure. Um, but <laughs> one great thing about the podcast, and I'll say for that broadly, is the ability to build relationships and learn from others. So at the end of the day, if you're a solo entrepreneur and you're looking to grow, the absolute best thing you could do is find not a mentor, but multiple mentors. There's an idea that every person should have their personal board of directors. I talk Mm -hmm. about that in the book. And that you go to that board of directors and they go back to you and they say, here's where you're failing. You're doing this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong. And they're doing it only because they, quote unquote, love you. They care about you. They want you to succeed. They're there for your best interest. So cultivating that personal board of directors around you, finding those mentors that are going to be willing to tell you it's straight of the things that you may be doing that are mistaken or the things that you're doing that are great. That's the best thing that someone could do. For me, I always wanted to work as close to a CEO as possible. And pretty much in every job from business school on, I worked directly for a CEO and they gave me the opportunity to be part of executive teams, to be meeting with the CEOs one-on-one and learning from, from, from them as much as I possibly could. So the answer is just exposure to thoughtful mm-hmm. people that care about your success and good things will come. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned working closely with CEO. I had a guy here years ago. This was before we were called Unmistakable Creative. And I remember coming across his story and he ended up taking a job as the executive assistant of the CEO, even though he was highly overqualified for the job for the very reason you're talking about. And he learned so much that he ended up starting his own company and selling it to Zynga. Damn. Okay. That's a good, that's a good, uh, basis for that resume. I mean, when I was in business school, the job that I was looking for more than any other job was an executive assistant, the CEO. And I ended up talking to or emailing with Ken Chenault, the CEO of American Express and David Stern from the National Basketball Association, all these other kind of famous CEOs and people trying to convince them that I should become their executive assistant to the CEO. It is Mm -hmm. an incredible learning opportunity. So for all those people who are listening, if you have an opportunity to do it, then do it. I was actually just talking to a, a CEO last week, um, CEO of Acorns, and he passed me on to the assistant of the CEO. And I was talking to her and I said, you have an awesome job. How'd you get that? And she just said, I went after it and I created it. And good for her. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit cellularnutrition.solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's cellularnutrition.solgar.com. 
Nutrition.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I remember sometime after my sophomore year in business school, one of our friends was an intern at The Gap. And somehow he got on Mickey Drexler's radar and he gets in the helicopter with Mickey Drexler and he had an assistant at the time whose name was Eileen Lee, who I'm sure you probably know, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. who is now a partner at Kleiner Perkins. Like I've seen her name so many times over the last couple of years. I'm like, wow, okay, that job really launched her into the stratosphere. It's amazing. It, it's it's the relationship that you have, the and also the comfort level that you're able to build in talking to very senior people. They're just regular yeah. people. And I think too often there's this, you know, um, deifying perhaps of people, mm-hmm. the Adam Newman's of the world or, or Fred Wilson, the Bill Ackman's, these very successful people of, of, I can't push back on this person. I'm not in the same league as this person, the, the imposter syndrome. But once you kind of get to know a lot of different other CEOs, you realize they're fallible, just like everyone is fallible. And um, it ends up being able to give you an opportunity to actually disagree. And once you're mm-hmm. able to, to be in a position where you're comfortable disagreeing with senior people, well, that's a good place to be because senior people don't, yeah. m- most senior people that are most successful don't want just yes people. They want people that are going to disagree. They're going to push them on the other side too. And I think yeah. being around that kind of opportunity, you know, builds those kind of chutzpah, shall we say, which is, you know, a Jewish term for just, you know, you know, balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I remember, you know, we have a community manager and we pretty much at the, you know, the previous community manager was one of our listeners. This was current community manager was one of our listeners. And I told her the reason I want to work with you is because you're the person who will call me on my bullshit. Nice. Nice. <clears throat> yeah. Um, well, let's get into the book itself. Uh, one of the places I think I want to start is with Adam Newman. Uh, I, I didn't even know that. Uh, meetup was owned by WeWork until you read, I read your book. Uh, at least, uh, you know, at that point they were I mean, working with somebody like that, especially given the reputation that he has now, what did you learn? Cause I'd imagine there are probably some good lessons that came from it too. I mean, clearly he convinced people to give him a shitload of money. Yes. I think Adam gets a bit of a raw deal and yeah. he was, taken by journalists as the amazing hero and people like taking heroes down and then he became the villain. And people oftentimes put people into one category or another category. They're either heroes or they're villains. He's flawed. He definitely made a lot of mistakes, but I'll share with some things that I learned from him because I think that's important. So number one is he, whether it's delusion or not, you could say, you know, derisively as delusion, or you could say that it's optimism and 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 ambition for for making the world a better place. He deeply believed that he had a God-given, truly, opportunity to deeply change the face of the world in terms of how people worked, which is where you what you spent a majority of your time doing, like you referenced in a, a section from the book that you read. And he had an ambition greater than anyone I've ever met in my life, that if you work hard at it, you can have a direct and immediate impact on potentially hundreds of millions of people. And and that's what he wanted to focus on. He wanted to create community in the workplace. He wanted to change the way that people work to be um, more interactive and less, you know, cubicleized. And he did that incredibly well. He is probably the most charismatic person I have ever heard present. He would give these presentations. I was just sitting there lopping it up, frankly. And I've heard lots of great presentations by lots of people. He, he honestly had me quite mesmerized. Um, now there's lots of negatives as well. And, you know, at some point, if you want to get into that, we could, but his ambition saw no limitations. And I think that's something mm-hmm. great to learn. And he truly yeah. did want to make the world a better place. He didn't know how to do it, but he wanted to make the world a better place. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say in the book, the job of the CEO is to dream big. And while I admire that ambition, the negative consequences are enormous because it impedes realistic planning and financial forecasting, like leaping off a skyscraper and figuring, you know, you'll learn how to fly on the way down. And I wonder how you balance that 
level of ambition that is absolutely a necessity to build great things and do amazing things in the world with you know the need to be realistic because i i have friends who i i think are delusional optimists and they think i'm a pessimist and i i remember i writing this thing about why cynics and pessimists have a lot in common i said because both of them don't plan for so basically optimists you know irrational optimists expect nothing bad to happen so they don't make plans for it and pessimists expect not, not everything bad to happen so they make no plans to change it both of them do nothing to alter the situation Right. The goal is to be the realistic optimist somehow, right? That's yeah. the, that's, that's, that's the, the golden mean. To me, the answer is th- this approach to business is the lean startup methodology, which is continuously being ambitious and not waiting for paralysis analysis and getting stuff out there. Even if it's not great, even if it's a problem, even if it's going to be an embarrassment, quickly getting feedback and then iterating and making it better. It's, it's that, it's that focus on not being afraid to have product experiences that are not amazing experiences so that you can learn from them as quickly as possible and iterate and change, iterate and change, iterate and change. So my philosophy generally is be ambitious on what you want to accomplish, but understand the way you're going to accomplish that is through incremental small changes and small wins that'll keep adding up 5% here, 10% here, 15% there, 10% there. Could you get to that 200% leap? Yes. But if you aim for that 200% leap, you're going to be striking out a hell of a lot. And I'd rather have an 80% certainty of getting, you know, this 20% improvement than a half a percent chance of getting, you know, a 200% improvement. And that's kind of always been my philosophy. It's funny because when I talk to writers and they come and tell me like, I want to sell a million books. I'm like, how about you start by writing a thousand words a day instead? (laughs) It's great advice. It really is about the discipline and writing a book of just getting up at a certain point in time, every, actually, you know, let me, let me tell you a, a analogy to that. One of my favorite meetup events that I've ever been to was when I went to a meetup event of a bunch of 20 or so PhD dissertation students who all got together every single day to hold themselves accountable for their writing. And they were writing about totally different things. One person wrote a chemistry dissertation, another person, psychology dissertation. They were, they were totally different disciplines. But the act of being a community and holding each other accountable to write and make certain amount of progress each day and not get distracted and have people say, Hey, I haven't noticed you weren't here last week or so. What's going on? Or seems like you hit a block. That type of thing is incredibly powerful and shows the power of community in kind of driving individual goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned some of the negatives in terms of what you learned from being so close to Adam. Uh, what were those? Yeah, I think that the best form of leadership truly is the Gandhi servant leadership mentality. It's saying my entire job is to enable your success, like the reverse organizational chart. I'm in the bottom of the organizational chart for a reason. My job is to support the executive team. The executive team's job is to support their managers. Manager's job is to support individual contributors. And Adam um, didn't see himself as you know, the reverse organizational chart, you know, he, he, he took certain, he treated himself differently than how he treated Mm -hmm. other people. And I think that's a problem in leadership. And that's something that I always try not to, um, not to follow. It's how can I learn from others, put myself in other people's perspectives and, and, and not hold myself to kind of a different expectation that I hold to other people that that would say that would Mm -hmm. definitely be one major difference. Yeah. Well, I'm speaking of leadership, uh, you came in to a startup that you are not the founder of, and you say that when you accept a leader position, leadership position, the hard work doesn't start day one. It starts the moment you accept the role because you have an enormous amount of planning to do before you walk in the door. So your first 30 days are really 90 days compressed into 30, perhaps even into one. Uh, tell me about what that experience is like. And for example, let's just say for, you know, by some stroke of good luck, you were like, Srini, I'm going to come over and take over as the CEO of Unmistakable Media because you're good at interviewing people. I would probably be like, great. And I'm guessing there are probably things that I would hate about it too. Srini, that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my career. Taking over for a CEO who's been running the company for 16 years, who knows every little tiny detail about the company, who's forgotten 10 times the amount that I could ever know, even in my first year in the job, and coming in your day one, imagine this, to 250 new faces, none of whom know you, and all of them expecting you to be like, 
the t- have the 10 tablets on your hand of like what the future company strategy is, your day one. It's just a great way to fail. So one of the things that I did that I really try to encourage all leaders to do is even though my first official day was, my, I made my first official day on the job one week prior to letting any employees or anyone in the company actually know. And I spent the first week just meeting with the executive team, just meeting with Scott, our founder, the HR team, understanding which people are strong, which people aren't as strong, where we need to improve, where we where we don't need to improve. So that, that way, once I got in front of all employees, I would have a moment to breathe. So I got a full week of just learning information, learning what was working without the distraction of kind of running a company. And that helped tremendously. And then when we, I joined the company, what I did is I was able to isolate six to eight big areas in the company where there were big problems happening. And I said, I don't know enough to solve these problems. So day one, we created six to eight different what's called work streams. And each work stream focused on a different challenge that the company was having. And I brought someone in to facilitate the work streams. They had to meet every single day. And then in a two-week time period, we were going to get the answers. And then I ended up following the advice, mostly almost all the advice from the work streams in terms of the, my plan. So if I had come in and decided we need to fire or end a, fire a number of people, shut down a couple of businesses, they'd be, people would say, what? What the heck does David know? Well, when the work stream recommended that we need to shut down a number of different business areas, and I just followed and supported what the work stream's advice was, then it was obvious that it made sense to actually proceed with that. So there are a whole host of things that I tried to do to set, our, set ourselves up, set me, set me and the team up for success without necessarily being the person that's the know-it-all that comes in in the beginning and tries to make lots of change. Right. Well, <clears throat> but you did also make a lot of change. You know, you yes. talk about breaking <laughs> bad habits, uh, which that struck me. You said, you know, break bad habits fast. One of the primary jobs of a new leader is to understand a company's bad habits. Every company has them and its employees are often too close to the habits to realize it, identify them, kill them. Meetup leaders often came late to meetings and had meetings with no agenda. These were bad habits and we need to change them fast. Personally, I never will attend a meeting if somebody doesn't give me an agenda. I can't stand meetings like that. Uh, well, it's but, disrespectful. It's disrespectful yeah. because you're not respecting the people's time and using people's time uh, inefficiently. And as we talked about mm-hmm. earlier, it almost goes down to our own mortality again. Time is our most valuable, precious thing that we have. And if people are going to come to a meeting with no agenda, without having think, th- thought of what we're going to talk about, without understanding what the goal is, Start off a meeting with what is the goal of this conversation and stick to that agenda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, at this point, like I literally have one agenda item. I very distinctly remember Keith Rabois giving a lecture, uh, you know, in this Y Combinator startup school podcast, it was a Sam Altman's class that he taught at Stanford. And he tells this story about working at PayPal in the early days with Peter Thiel and Peter had a rule apparently where if that person was working on something and they came to him to talk about something else, he'd be like, I'm not going to talk to you about anything other than this one thing. Wow. See, that just takes such discipline. I, I hold that in such high admiration. One of the areas, one of our six values as a company is focus on impact. And when I had joined Meetup, we were doing so many different things, like many entrepreneurial companies do. You know, the famous mm-hmm. line that, Startups die from indigestion much more than starvation. Just really rang true with Meetup because we had so many pet projects that my job was, how can we end a lot of these pet projects and just refocus the organization to other things? And that's what a new person can come in and do. It's very hard when an old, you know, when a CEO has been doing something for a year, two or three, and it's been a focus and say, now we're going to shut that down. And oh, by the way, that's all my fault for having started in the first place. It's just hard Mm -hmm. to do. Yeah. Well, it just kind of, I, I'm going back through Ken Seagal's uh, book, Insanely Simple, uh, which is all about Apple and how Steve Jobs basically prioritized simplicity. And it was kind of funny. Like, I'm, you know, going back, this is the second time. And I remember talking to our community manager and I told her, it's like, I want to kill a dozen things that we're working on uh, because they don't make sense and they're unnecessarily complicated. They're difficult for people to understand. But one thing that you say is that founders tend to make decisions on intuition rather than using data. The reason is fairly obvious. They succeeded and built successful businesses initially on their intuition, and it's a success from intuition-based decisions that reinforced its greater value over data. And I can tell you, I started this podcast, and which you know, we ended up raising a round of venture funding for, because one guy I interviewed when I started a blog 10 years ago said that I was a better interviewer than I am a writer. 
an hour later, I mocked up the first version of the website and said, when do you want to get started? Wow. What and a moment for you. What an impactful moment. Yeah. I mean, that, that one moment changed my, the entire trajectory of my life. Um, I actually want to come back to rapid execution and, you know, moving quickly because that is, there's a, another story about that, that um, it just reminded me of, but when you come into a situation where somebody like me, for example, has been running unmistakable creative and you're suddenly the CEO of unmistakable media or meetup where you're taking over for Scott, how do you make sure you don't lose the original essence of what that person created and ended up in a John Scully situation? Good example. Actually, even talk about John Scully in the book. Let's <laughs> say my meeting with him. So we get into that some other time. So I think the first is we've talked already in the beginning of this podcast about the importance of empathy. And you have to start off with empathy. You have to say, oh my God, I am taking over a company which is the baby of this person. If you have three children, this is your fourth child. That's how much time and energy attention. And just Acknowledging that in the beginning, this is this person's baby helps you to understand that they're going to have irrational emotional attachments to their baby, just like any parent has irrational emotional attachments to their children in good ways. So first step is just acknowledging that there's going to be both irrational attachments, but also gold. There's going to be gold that this person can, can bring to the organization. So it's me sitting down with you if I was taking over or, or with our CEO, our, our previous CEO. And we made Scott the chairman of the company. And we said, Scott, I need you to stay close to what's happening because you are the heart and soul of this organization. And we can't just go to the extreme of going from, you know, CEO Scott to Scott not no longer part of the company. We need to find a path to take the great ambition and spiritual value, shall we say, in having built the DNA of the company and apply that in healthy ways. So for example, one of the things that he did is every time new employees would start, he would take them on a meetup tour and he'd bring them from meetup to meetup to meetup and help them to understand the essence of the impact that meetup has on people's lives. And that was just a great role for a chairman in terms of understanding the mission of the company. And I would try to channel that in productive ways because too often people just jettison that incredible history and that incredible passion. And that's oftentimes a mistake. Mm, wow. Well, let's talk about one uh, other area of this. Uh, you talk about fake companies and that really struck me because I, I was just going through this and I'm, I'm going through a lot of these issues myself right now. And you say a company that doesn't have a clear path to profitability, profitability and is fully supported by investors or its parent company is a fake company. Why? Because if the investors or parent company changes its mind, the company would cease to exist. A company that doesn't provide any meaningful product differentiation relative to competitors is a fake company because even if it has had historic success in sales or marketing, its advantage is not sustainable. A company that does not have proper controls, processes, and reporting in place to ensure appropriate feedback loops and smart decisions is a fake company because it cannot maintain its health without the right strategic and financial processes. And it's funny because I, I feel like you summarized Victor Chang's book, Extremely Revenue Growth, in three sentences. And I haven't even read the book, so that sounds great to me. At the end, what I focus on between fake company and real company, it's all about sustainability. And I don't mean from the echo side. I mean, is the thing that you are building right now, can it be sustained or not? If you are simply charging a lower price, for example, for a product that someone could get anywhere, and you don't have a lower cost structure to support that lower price, that's a fake company because you're going to yeah. go bye-bye very quickly. If you're growing at such extreme rates like WeWork did and doesn't have the infrastructure and reporting and financial discipline in place to support that in accelerated growth, you're going to be a fake company and you're going to go crashing down as WeWork did. And you know, I think the key is how do you build out and a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand how important it is to focus on these things, the processes that will ultimately enable and support the growth of a company, because uh -huh. growth for growth's sake ain't going to result in growth. Growth <laughs> <Trust me. laughs> yeah. with process underpinnings will actually result in appropriate oh, growth. It's funny. I, I think right before we were talking here, I was talking to a, my friend who's the founder, and I just looked at the way he works. It's like, this is a disaster. I can fix this in an hour. But um and, and a lot of it is driven by my own diagnosing process issues in the way that we run unmistakable. But the funny thing is we have certain processes so streamlined. So for example, I 
can go a month without talking to my audio engineer and we'll never miss a publishing date. Wow. Wow. Um, and I have a friend who builds Airtable automations for companies like big, big companies. We're talking big brands that you know. And he told me half the time he goes into these huge companies, they don't even know their own process. And I started to realize at a certain point, like I remember thinking it's like there's all this bureaucratic nonsense in a big company. And I finally realized it was like, there's a reason for that because there's no way in hell you could scale if there wasn't some level of standardization. So I always come back to the example, like imagine if Google was hiring, you know, a hundred people a month and every time they hired somebody, they were reinventing the wheel, they would it'd just be chaos. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting you talk about this because the goal generally is how do you make yourself as unnecessary as possible, right? If <laughs> yeah, you're unnecessary, exactly. then what it means is that you develop the processes and everything else that you could just kind of like poof, disappear and everything is working really well. And when I need to get, let's say, more involved in a certain function, I know there's a problem because that means I'm too necessary. And if I'm necessary, then we have actually a problem going on. So, you know, at the same time, there's this interesting tension in that executives also want to advance their careers. So, so, and they want to show they're really necessary and really important. So in evaluating executives, wouldn't it be great if the way the CEO approached it is set, as they said, you have made yourself so unnecessary as a leader that now I have to promote you because of the great that job that you did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I always jokingly say I'm the most useless person, you know, at my company. Uh, even the email that you got that was the invitation to this link, that literally was just me pasting a uh, link into a spreadsheet. I didn't send that. Wow. It was all set up with systems and processes on the back end. That's, that's the way to do it. It's the way to do it. Yeah. That's how you scale. And that's also how you could then spend your time in areas that are not just kind of short-term blocking and tackling, but thinking bigger. When you, it's very hard to go from super detailed micro stuff into larger picture type, type work. And the ability no. to get the super detailed micro stuff as part of standard processes allows you then think bigger, act bigger, and then hopefully then end up ultimately succeeding. It's about growth and it's about success. So process yeah. drives growth and success. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, you may have read Scott Belsky's book, Making Ideas Happen, and I'm, I'm launching a new online course about the, you know, uh, no taking up mem called uh, maximize your output. And I started to look very closely as I've been going through this. I was like, the reason people have all these problems of time management distractions is because all these things are band-aids on bullet wounds. None of them address the root cause, which is the way that we organize information. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, you know, addressing issues, you know, so when you come in, let's just say I said, hey, hey, I want you to come in and do a complete audit on everything we're doing wrong and what we should kill. Uh, what would that look like? So finding all the mistakes and unmistakable. Yeah. <laughs> what it would look like. Here's what I would say is. It would be me coming in with as curious a perspective as possible with reserving as much judgment as I could about why you're doing certain things. Oftentimes yeah. a consultant comes in and, and sees something and says, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, that also doesn't make sense. What the heck are they doing there? And, and it's the, the key question is, why did you start doing this? And is the reason why you started doing this specific thing still true today? Or is it no longer true anymore? And therefore we should get rid of, you know, this particular uh, process that you happen to be doing right now. And just keep asking the question, what made you want to start, um, sending up the emails beforehand? What made you want to start finding this specific guest that, that, that you wanted to, uh, to bring in, you know, um, to the podcast? And mm -hmm. is it still as relevant now? Or is there better processes now? Like, like getting feedback from other people, like Michael Shine of who would be a great person to be part of it. And yeah. hopefully I'm not letting you and you and Michael down as, as we're speaking right now. <laughs> no, not but at I all. The process I would do is ask as many questions as possible and then ask questions on, you know, why you should continue to do the same things or whether you should um, possibly stop doing the things that you're doing right now. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's funny. I, I kind of have probably some of the most ruthless guest standards around. <laughs> I've turned down plenty of famous people like, what somebody has accomplished is a very little interest to me. Their story is a far more interest to me. And Michael, I know, has sent me nothing but people with really interesting stories. And if you weren't living up to it, I would have cut the interview in the middle. I've done that before. 
Phew. Yeah, I'm not an easy person to deal with. Um, wow. Okay, cool. So, you know, at this point in your life, I mean, you've accomplished more than a lot of people get to in a lifetime. Uh, and I wonder when you think about wealth, money, success, has your definition of what that means changed with time and age? So from a young age, believe it or not, I always saw wealth as a some, simply a complete means towards freedom. It's almost like the sl- slaves of the past that had to, this is a terrible analogy. I'm not even actually going to go there. What I would say is that wealth and building wealth gives you an opportunity to spend your time, which is the most precious thing that you have, in the endeavors that, of how you want to be spending your time. So my plan personally is this is my last CEO gig. I hopefully will run Meetup for a meaningful period of time. And then if we ever decide to go public or sell the company, then I don't have an interest in running another company after that. I'm up for my next you know, adventure of whatever that is going to look like. And I've been a corporate person for 25 years. So for me, success was understanding that, have to be so cliche about it, but it's true. You, you work to live, you don't live to work. And what that meant is I was one of the first people to leave the office in my 20s and in my 30s when people are grinding and looking to how they could become you know, the next CEO. To me, the important thing was, how could I get home? How could I have dinner with my family? How can I make sure to put my kids to sleep? How can I be as happy a person as possible maximize my happiness, maximize my positive energy, and I'll be successful because I'm a happy, positive, energetic, and hopefully you know, good at what I happen to do. And an extra hour or two in the office is only going to cause you know, negative emotions, negative feelings, and potentially let pessimism actually creep into, into my future. So things like prioritizing exercise and working out every single day, it's one of the best investments of time because it gives you more energy to ultimately be successful, you know, in the things that you care to spend your time doing. Mm-hmm. So to yeah. me, that's, that's been the priority. How do you live kind of as balanced a life as possible? And, you know, when I hear people say things like, well, I just need to put another five or 10 years into, you know, working till midnight every night, and then I'm going to start enjoying myself. No, no. Like, <clears throat> how can you enjoy your day to day while still setting yourself up for a successful yeah. future? Joy in the day to day. And then setting yourself up for the future. Yeah, I remember uh, you may have read it. Uh, this guy, Bill Perkins, wrote a book called Die With Zero. And he talks about something called the peak utility of money. And he said that there's going to be a certain point at which you're not going to be able to do things with your money that you can uh, you know, at, when you're younger. Yeah, listen, the happiness curve is real. And the interesting thing about the happiness curve is that, is that the more money you make leads to more happiness up to a certain point. And then actually the curve goes down, believe it or not, that as you start making even more money into the really big numbers, on average, people end up becoming a little less happier than they are. Mm -hmm. So so there's a negative to that. And when people just have an insatiable appetite for multi-generational wealth, you know, I tell my kids, I'm like, I am going to die with zero dollars. My goal is not to create this trust fund for you to be able to lackadaisically um, just <laughs> kind of live off of, you know why? Because I care about their happiness and you're mm-hmm. happy when you're creating something. And you know that the reason why you have that is because you put the work into it. And from that pain and from that work, you end up being so much more appreciative for what you were able to build. I want to give that to my kids. And if they have yeah. the trust funds, they don't have that. So, you know, it's got to spend some money now. That's the goal. Yeah, I, I, I remember, I, I, like I put this post on Facebook, it said, you know, if somebody said, okay, I'll give you $250,000 now, or you can earn $250,000 over the next year by doing the work, which would you take? And I said, the smarter would be to do the latter, because the thing is that you're going to learn how to do it. Ooh, I like that. I really like that. And, right. and then you'll be able to repeat that next time and make exactly more than $250,000 when you do that. It's, you know, the old adage of teaching people how to, to fish versus fishing for them. And it's, it's just really important. That's, that's what good leaders do is good coaches do. You know, they help yeah. people to figure things out for themselves as opposed to do things for them. Yeah. That's good parents do. Frankly, there's a lot of similarities actually between parenting and, and kind of leading a company, which, uh, um, you know, becomes more apparent pun intended. 
<laughs> well, hopefully my, my, you know, experience of running a small team of three to four people is preparing me for being a parent, but I also get to ask people like you for parenting advice. Although rumor has it that regardless of all that, it's still going to be a giant shit show. <laughs> no matter what man plans, yeah. God laughs and yeah. you know, there'll be always, up, always lots of ups and downs with, uh, with the kids, but, but hopefully they don't hate you. That's the goal. Yeah. Wow. I feel like I could talk to you for three hours. There's just, you seem to be a wealth of knowledge and this seems like to be a pretty deep rabbit hole. So in the interest of time, um, I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, I really believe in the energy that people give off. And I'm sorry it sounds so wishy-washy or whatever, but when you meet with someone, like even this exchange that I'm having with you right now, and we're not in person, we're doing this through audio only. You could just feel your energy just pouring out and coming through and just the way in which you're exuding kind of your enthusiasm, you know, for your subject matter, for what you do every day. And to me, what makes someone unmistakable is that energy that, that exudes from them when they're talking about the things that they're passionate about. And I love the fact that you have this podcast because it helps people to share their passions with other people and hopefully learn from that and hopefully be a motivation for that as well. So to me, that's the recipe. It's the energy around people. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with listeners. And I just realized, I don't know if we did mention the title of the book. The I was thinking that the entire time. I was like, no one even knows what the book's name is. But no, I no, like, I, trust me. I always ask people at the very end to you know let us know where. So you know, on that note, where can people uh, find out more about you, the book, your work? I mean, obviously meet up, but you know, beyond that, where can people find out more about you? Okay, so for Meetup, download the app. Uh, it's a great experience. Find a community, and it's available for everyone in every country and every city. Um, in terms of me, uh, the book is called Decide and Conquer. You can listen to it. You can read it. You can find it on Amazon, wherever books are sold. You also go to our website, decideandconquerbook.com or Amazon. And I would love any and all feedback. You can even send me an email to david at meetup.com and love to hear your feedback. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.